snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. To begin today's episode, first, let's listen to some quotes from the classic science fiction drama, Star Trek. Energize. Biophases. Library computer. History files. For people who lived in the 1960s, these gizmos might appear to be too whimsical and nonsensical. Yet, in just less than half a century, from universal translators to handheld computers, many gadgets presenting the show have turned into reality. Nowadays, even the least tech-savvy individuals have to admit that our technology has evolved better and faster than ever. But what is going to happen next? Eventually, technology will look just like life. It will become self-replicating. It will become conscious, like we are. This is Kevin Kelly, co-founder of Wired, one of America's leading magazines on techno culture. I think of myself as an editor at heart, so I enjoy packaging ideas. A digital visionary and prophet, Kelly has produced some highly influential writings, including Out of Control. Published in 1995, the book inspired the Wachowskis' Matrix universe and more or less predicted the Internet of today. His most recent book is The Inevitable, which sheds light on 12 forthcoming technological forces. In today's Ink and Quill, our reporter Shi Yu talks with this best-selling author to get a glimpse of the future. Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for mm-hmm. sending this interview. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to to be here. And Before we touch on some really serious stuff,、mm-hmm. could you introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners who are out there and not familiar with your background? So I think of myself as an editor at heart. So I enjoy packaging ideas,、mm-hmm. and that's something I've been doing for a very long time. I started off as a photographer in. Asia.、Mm-hmm. I was photographing the disappearing traditions and culture of Asia, and over time, I started to write about Asia and traveling. And I discovered something in the early '80s, the online world, and I started to report on it as if it was a new country. So I was interested in the cultural ramifications of technology, and I started working for a magazine that I loved as a kid. Called the Whole Earth or Coevolution Quarterly, and this was a magazine about conceptual news. And we got involved in starting some of the earliest online technology,、mm-hmm. something called the Well, which was the first public access to the internet. And I organized the first hackers conference and the first virtual reality jamboree in the '80s. And I got more and more involved in technology as a cultural avenue. Rather than the technological, I was much more interested in the social aspects of, of technology rather than the technology itself.、Mm-hmm. And then I began to, to write about what was happening in this world of technology from the cultural, societal aspect. And so, I had the chance to be involved in starting a magazine called Wired, which was about 
the culture of technology mm-hmm. and it did very well it came at the right time and it helped a lot of people kind of understand what was happening at the beginning of the internet um, and then I went on to write some books about the meaning of technologies rather than how the technology works so in recent years I've been talking more about the future of technology yeah. where it's going and I think that's my reputation in China is talking about the future I recently wrote a book called The Inevitable that came out in China first before it came out in the US mm-hmm. so I have a reputation for talking about what's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 years mm, interesting as you mentioned before you have written extensively about technology human made invention and I noticed from out of control what technologies want and your latest book you have mentioned something really interesting because you see technology as an extension of life so I was wondering where does that theory come from yeah like if you explained more about it yeah so I'm different from a lot of people who talk about technology or even critics of technology in the sense that I, that I believe that the mechanical things that we make, our machines and uh, the internet, are actually extensions of the same forces that are at work in the natural world through evolution. And that you could think of these, the artificial world as sort of a neo-biological world, meaning that it's, it's actually kind of like the same thing that life is, but on a different time scale. Mm-hmm. And that idea is not a new idea. It came from some of the earliest thinkers uh, from von Neumann onward who were thinking in a, in a technology in an abstract sense of trying to figure out what it was and thinking about computers. And so it's kind of an old idea that's been around for a long time, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to formalize it, mm-hmm. trying to make it a little bit more explicit and to maybe even more radical in terms of trying to connect it to other things. So the book I wrote called What Technology Wants could be thought of in some ways as a proto-theory of technology. Mm-hmm. See, unlike biology, where we now have a theory about biology that connects all the biological observations into one thing, Darwin's theory of evolution. Yeah. So when we identify something in the living world, we can put it into a framework of evolution to kind of understand it. We don't have that theory of technology. Technology yeah. seems to be random, new inventions one after another, but I was trying to propose a unifying theory, which is basically the same theory. And so that's still a minority view. It's still not uh, widely accepted. And um, my description of it is still not very scientific, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty sure that it's correct. And so. I find that it's helpful to think of technology as a living force because it helps us understand where it's going. When you're talking about the evolution of technology, what drives it? What drives the evolution of technology is the same thing that drives the evolution of life. And, and I think what drives the evolution of life is that it is moving toward, towards greater complexity, greater specialization. And what is driving it is self-organization, just the basic structure of, of the universe. So this is why I use the word inevitable. So there is a, a force within the universe that helps or encourages or channels 
self-organized things to become more and more complicated over time. And we see that from the Big Bang, and then we see how matter self-organized into galaxies, which then self-organized into stars, which then self-organized into planets. And then on some planets, it was self-organized into life, and some life would self-organize into mind. That same self-organizing force is the same thing that then self-organizes into technology. So it does have its own mechanism. Right. But eventually, what will technology look like? So it will look like eventually, technology will look just like life. It'll become self-replicating.、Mm-hmm. It'll become conscious, like we are. Robots that have a mind or even a soul. It'll become as complicated with as many different species as we see in life. So, when we arrive on, say, a planet, on a distant galaxy, sometime in the future, there may be advanced technology that, to us, will almost look like it was living. We won't be able to tell, in other words. Whether we pick up something, whether this is something that is actually technological or biological,、mm-hmm. in in a future advanced civilization, because the ideal technology would be、uh, something that would get its own energy,、mm-hmm. like an animal. We don't have to give it batteries; it would find the energy itself. It would make more of itself. We wouldn't have to have a factory to make it; it would just self-reproduce.、Um, we wouldn't have to direct it; we could just It would have internal direction, and so it would look very much like a living thing to us today. So that's where it's going. I know there's a term that really popular in recent years. We're talking about technological singularity.、Mm. So is that the peak、mm. of technology in terms of its own development? So the term singularity is used in many different ways. Yeah. And the way you were using it, the way that some people use it, is this idea that.、Um, If we could imagine making an artificial intelligence, like a robot brain, that was smarter than us, and if it was smarter than us, it might be able to make a brain that was smarter than itself. So, if you could make an、uh, intelligence that was smarter than it, and that could make itself, and then something smarter than itself, and if that could make something smarter than itself, and then you have this chain, this cascade, this avalanche. Where it's making itself smarter and smarter and smarter, and maybe it's doing it even faster each time.、Mm-hmm. Then that's what the original researcher in the 1950s called an intelligence explosion,、mm-hmm. and it almost kind of like almost could go infinite in some respects. That's the idea of the singularity, and becomes so smart that it, we're like ants compared to it, and who knows what happens after that? You can't see. Actually, I don't、uh, believe that. Really? Yeah, I don't think that could happen for a number of reasons. I think it's like Superman. It's kind of mythical.、Mm. It's almost like God. You almost like invent God. And、um, some people really believe that, like Ray Kurzweil and others, who really think that's going to happen in around the year 2040. Yeah. If this thing happened, it would become so smart that it would solve. All our human problems, including mortality, we would、mm. basically it would allow us to live forever. And so Ray says that if you can live through that, if you can live long enough, if you can、um, survive until 2040, then you're going to live forever. And so he personally is taking 250 pills every day 
to make sure that he lives to, to 2040. He's, you know, he's, I think he's already 70 or something. Um, so if he can live to 2040, he'll live forever. Again, I, I, I think that's very, very, very unlikely. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I think it's unlikely. So that's the version of the singularity that people often talk about. Mm-hmm. But there are other versions of singularities. There are softer versions, weaker versions, where I think a more likely one is that we have uh, the meta-machine of all the computers that we have in the world today linked together, all your phones linked together, kind of creates a global machine, almost like a global intelligence. Mm-hmm. And that intelligence could, could have patterns of thought that we may not be aware of. And that would be a different kind of singularity, and I think that's actually more likely. More likely. And so it's a singularity in the sense of the physical definition, which means we can't really see beyond it. So I'm not a big fan of the first, you know, the, 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 what we call the hard singularity, because I think it's very unlikely. But we might have something with technology. We might have a technological singularity in the sense that there could be things happening that we would find very hard for us to imagine what they will be looking from today. And so what's the solution to that? Well, I don't think that's going to happen very fast. I think that um, they'll be gradual. Like the acquisition of language for humans was very gradual. Yeah. But that was a singularity for us because before language, it was impossible for all the humanoids before language to imagine the world after language. But that still took a long time to acquire language. But nobody was sitting around saying, oh, do you realize we're inventing language? (laughs) And so it was only kind of seen in retrospect. You look back and say, oh, we went through something that was very fundamental. Yeah, so it all depends on the future generation to find, oh, where were we in the year of 2017? Yes. The generations of the unborn will decide where we'll go. Even though I wrote this book called The Inevitable, which is about the inevitable development of technologies in certain directions. So we don't have a lot of choice about what technologies are coming. Mm -hmm. But we have a lot of choice about their character and how they're used and how they're implemented. Mm -hmm. So I would have said that the internet was inevitable. Once you invent electricity and you have wires and you have radio and telephones, you're going to have the internet. That's inevitable. Yeah. But what kind of internet? The character of the internet, whether it's national or commercial or non-commercial or non-profit or international, you know, whether it's open or closed, all those issues are not inevitable. We have a choice, and they make a huge difference to us. Yeah. So we're going to have artificial intelligence. But what kind of artificial intelligence? Who decides? What's? How is it regulated? Um, is it international? Do we share? You know, all these other questions. Those are not inevitable. We have a choice, yeah. and that choice makes a big difference. Virtual reality is inevitable. But what's the political climate around it? Who owns the data? You know, all these other questions. That's not inevitable. We have a choice. It makes a big difference. So we have a lot of choice about the things that affect us, but we don't have much choice about the kinds of technologies that are coming, because they're going to come whether we choose them or not. So in terms of evolution process, where are we now? 
Are we still in the early stage? Or? Well, we're always in the early stage. But I can say for sure that the things that are coming in 20 years, like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, total tracking, all these kinds of things, we're in the very, 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 very beginning of that. And so that's good news and bad news. The good news is that there are no artificial intelligence experts or virtual reality experts or tracking experts. So that means that anybody here, anybody listening, you could become that expert. So that's the good news, is that we're so early that there's all these amazing, easy, low-hanging fruits that can be grasped today. The bad news is that we don't know anything. We don't know how to govern it. We don't know how to regulate it. We don't know how to be educated for it. We don't know the social norms. You know, even something like social media. Mm -hmm. Social media is less than 5,000 days old. It's just a baby. Yeah. We don't know how to use it. We don't know the best way to use it. We don't know how to regulate it. We don't know anything about it because it's just, it's just 5,000 days old. It hasn't been around very long. And so these things will take time for us to figure out what they're really good for, how we have to, to use them, how they affect our lives, how they affect our brains. None of this do we know right now. And we don't know about AI or VR. You know, We don't know the health effects of virtual reality. We don't know what happens to our own souls when we treat robots like slaves. And so there's so much that we don't know that we have to learn. And we're not going to learn it by thinking about it. We have to learn it by using this stuff. Yeah. But let's talk about something we do know, because I know in your book, the Inevitable, mm -hmm. you list 12 technological trends, mm -hmm. and then one of them is AI. Now, if we say, oh, our AI and robots are going to turn out to be Skynet, it sounds like scaremongering. But I know a lot of people, they're scared of AI, especially mm. after, you know, Google's DeepMind mm -hmm. beat human players in the Go game. So in your opinion, should we get worried? No, we should be excited. Of course, the AIs have been beating humans games for a while now, and at least a decade ago, maybe more, the supercomputer, Deep Blue from, from IBM, beat the world's best chess player, yeah. Gary Kasparov. And at that time, people thought, oh, no, that's the end, the end of the world, end of the human race. But there are several interesting things that happened there. One is that um, the world's best human players actually got better by playing the computer uh, chess player games. So the best human chess player today, Magnus Carter, I think his name is, has been playing against computer chess games for many years. He learned how to play, and he's now considered the best chess player ever. Mm. So first of all, what happened was it made human chess players better. And by the way, because we have chess games so much, there are now more chess players than ever before. Mm. So it didn't kill off human playing of chess even. It actually made it better and made more of them. And then the third thing that happened was Gary Kasparov, the guy who lost, he said, you know, it's kind of unfair, this deep blue AI, because it had access to this database of every single chess game that had ever been played. And if I had access to that same database, I could have beat deep blue. So he decided to make his own new chess league where anybody could have access to anything, and you could play kind of like a free martial arts. You could play any style you wanted to. 
You could play as a human chess master, you could play as an AI, or you could play as a team. And he, he called that team of the AI and the human, he called that team a centaur, mm -hmm. like the mythical half-horse, half-human. And in the last four years, the best chess players on this planet are not an AI, and they're not a human chess master, they're a centaur, they're a team. Mm -hmm. And now the U.S. military is also using centaurs so their ideal soldier is not a robot soldier, and it's not a human soldier. It's a centaur of a human plus an AI. And I think that suggests to us we're not going to work against the machines, but work with the machines. Mm. Working with AI is going to be the powerful combination. Because the thing about the AIs that people don't understand, that they have to understand, is that they think differently than humans. The idea that they're smarter than humans is really an incorrect, misguided sense because that reduces human intelligence to a single dimension and there's not a single dimension. It's multi-dimensional. There's many different kinds and modes of thinking. Our minds are complex of different instruments of, of cognition and some of those, like your calculators, smarter than you are in, arith in arithmetic, they're very narrow and specialized and different than human thinking and we want them to drive our cars like an auto-driven car because they don't drive like humans that's their benefit so that's why we shouldn't be afraid of them because and that's useful to us to work with them because when we work with them we'll be able to go further together than we could alone yeah i think for a lot of people their major concern is that ai or robots they're going to take over our job right any job we have is a bundle of different tasks. Some of those tasks are repetitive types of tasks, and those kind of tasks will go to the robots. Some of your tasks won't. And so your job will be redefined by AI robots, and some jobs have more of those kind of tasks than others, and so those kind of like, you know, driving a truck will probably mostly go to AIs, but there might be some aspects or some places where the AIs don't work, and so there'll be truck drivers for those kinds of things. So, so, so it's not jobs, it's tasks. The tasks are going to the robots. And any kind of a task where productivity is important, those are kind of the tasks that go to, to the robots. And that, by the way, applies to everybody's job. It doesn't matter who you are, some of those tasks will go. So that means that basically the robots are going to redefine your job, not necessarily take it away, they're going to change it. While they also take away certain tasks, they're also going to, that technology will create many more new tasks that we didn't even know we wanted done. Just like today, we are doing jobs that the farmers 150 years ago had no idea that anybody wanted done. Mm. So in America, 150 years ago, 70% of Americans were on the farm. 70%. Today, there's less than 1%. Yeah. So all those, 70% of Americans lost their jobs. And if you told them 150 years ago that 70% of you are going to have no jobs, they would say, well, what would we do? And you'd say, well, you'd be a mortgage broker, a web designer, you know, a consultant, a yoga teacher. None of those would make any sense. They're all new things that we didn't even know we wanted done back then. Yeah. They came about because of technology. And so this technology, AI and VR and all these other, we're going to produce a whole bunch of new things that we didn't know we wanted done 
and our tasks, our jobs will, will, will shift to include those things and there'll be more things for us to do than ever before. And it's not about having a college degree or being professional because lots of things that we want done will be about human experiences and things where it's important that you be a human. Like, um, does that human attention becomes more and more special, like having a doctor come to your house or having babysitting or personal coaching or a five-star meal where the human touch is expensive. And, and that's the only thing in our economy that's getting more expensive and not cheaper mm. is things have to do with human experiences. So even people who aren't educated professionally have an opportunity to become valuable in this new economy. So I'm not at all worried about the long-term effects. I think there will be friction and there will be transition mm. period that is going to be difficult. But I think in the long term, we will have more jobs to do than ever before. How are we going to deal our relation with robot? Are we going to head into that landscape that Isaac Asimov pictures years ago? Are we going to have that kind of clash or ethnic problem? I think we will have some conflict. One of the things that people are not prepared for, I think, is how emotional emotionally connected we will feel with AIs. It turns out that it's actually very easy to program emotion into an AI and uh, also emotion sensitivity where they can understand our emotions. Mm -hmm. We can teach uh, an AI computer to understand 25 different human emotions about whether I am depressed or whether I am distracted or whether I am surprised. We can teach an AI to detect that and we can also give it that kind of an emotion. So we shouldn't be surprised because animals have emotions. You know, if you have a dog or even a cat, you can kind of under, you can actually see their emotions. So you don't need to have consciousness to have emotion. So we can put in emotions into robots. And if you can imagine like little kids falling in love with a little doll that hardly moves, imagine if you have a doll that has intelligence and can talk to you and can be emotional, you'll just fall in love with it. So we're going to fall in love, human great bonds with AIs and robots. And that brings up all kinds of issues of how we treat them, our ethics, our morality. And so it's going to be very complicated and very complex and there's going to be a lot of conflict because of that, mm. um, whether they have rights, if they do, what rights do they have? Um, how can they be treated? Are they, and then all the other issues about whether a, you know, a car or a robot is responsible for its actions, who's responsible, how do we put in moral behavior. So there's a lot that I think is going to be uh, in conflict. But that's good. That's good. Because we actually know already that we can teach ethics to robots. Once we have defined our ethics, and that's the problem, is, is that human, we think we're very moral and ethical, but it turns out that we're very inconsistent, we're very shallow, we're not very deep. And so in trying to teach our highest and best ethics and moralities to the robots, this can make us better.
just like you have a parent trying to teach your kid, you realize, oh, I, I, I don't do that, or I better change my behavior. Yeah. And so, just like the chess player, once we taught AIs how to play chess and made us better chess players, as we try to teach the AIs and the robots how to be moral and ethical, we will become better ethically mm-hmm. ourselves. You are listening to Ink and Quill with Yang Yong. That was Kevin Kelly explaining to Shi Yu why we shouldn't be afraid of robots and artificial intelligence. Now let's take a short break. Coming up, they will continue to discuss the technological trends that may revolutionize the world in the future. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. So, is there any other technologies that we shouldn't worry about? Before we skip that, I think there are things we should worry about, and here's the things I am worried about: AI. I'm I'm worried about the weaponization of AI,、mm-hmm. turning AI into a weapon. There's been no inventions. We've had no technology that we haven't somebody hasn't weaponized, and that is something we should be concerned about. And I am worried about that because right now we don't have any guidelines.、Yeah. We don't have any consensus. Cyber warfare. We don't have any consensus at all.、Mm. My fear is that it will take some disaster, some human, some international episode that a lot of people get hurt or whatever. A dam blows up, or because of cyber AI. So. The worry is that it will take some kind of a disaster before there's any agreement on on, on these things.、Mm. I think we will go through a period where we may treat AI robots like slaves, and that may be corrosive to us.、Mm. That may affect us, yeah, even in ways we don't understand. So, kind of like what happened in Westworld. Yeah, that is something that I am concerned about.、Mm-hmm. But in your book. If I may read one part of it,、yeah. you said, "As we watch the screen, the screen is watching us. How we react, where we look,、yeah. and here you even said, 'We think technology has saturated our private space, but we'll look back in 20 years and realize it was still far away、yeah. in 2016.'" And my concern is that is it going to violate free will because、mm. it's like in the future. Yeah, uh, yeah. The private space, the sense of privacy, will be an illusion. Yes, it, it is an illusion. Actually, humans, you and I, as a species, we developed over millions of years to become who we are in situations where there was no privacy. We evolved in clans of a hundred or less people, and in those clans, for our entire lives, from the day we were born till we die, every moment. The people around us knew everything about us all the time. Yeah, everything. I mean, you couldn't even have sex privately. It was、mm. just everything was known. What you did, what you thought, really. So we are comfortable with that. The idea of privacy is actually a very recent thing that came in the last couple hundred years when we made cities big enough that people could really be anonymous. Many good things came from that. Anonymity.、Uh, a lot of the, I think, a lot of the the potential renaissance and stuff came because we actually created for the first time a little bit of a sense of a private self. 
So I'm not, I don't think we should er- eliminate it, but I, but I'm saying we can be more comfortable with that sense of total transparency because that's how we evolved. Yeah. But what's different now is that that kind of transparency was what I called covalence. It was mutual mm-hmm. because everybody saw each other. So while I knew everything about you, you knew everything about me. Mm-hmm. So it went both ways. It was what I call symmetrical. We don't have that now. Now we have a sense of asymmetry where they, whether it's Google or the Baidu or the government or whatever, they know more about me. I don't know who what they know, I, I, I can't hold them accountable, I get no benefit, so it doesn't feel good. And so what I'm suggesting is that I think it's inevitable that we're going to have more and more tracking. This technology will track us more. And the only way that we can be comfortable with it is if, if it has more of a covalence, more of a mutual, and we know we can watch who's watching us. We can hold them accountable. We can share in the benefits, the rights and responsibilities of that if we make it more co-symmetrical. And so um, if we don't, then it's going to be very uncomfortable and it will be hellish. But if we can, I believe, then then we'll be comfortable because that's how we evolved. Mm -hmm. So while I would say more tracking, total tracking, is inevitable, what's not inevitable it's how that tracking is done. Mm. There we have a choice, and that choice makes a huge difference to us. But technology won't make choice for us? Not these kinds of choices. We can program like an AI to make choices, but that's not what's governing our culture. Our culture is a collection of 7 billion people making choices. Mm. So in the next 20 years, is there any other technology probably will transform or turn our society upside down. Besides AI? Yeah, besides AI. Because AI is the major thing. And that's going to affect everything. There's not a single job, there's not a single industry, there's not a single sector that's not going to be affected by AI. In the same way that electricity has penetrated everything we do, mm-hmm. right? And there's no there's no job really that's not affected by electricity and artificial power. AI will affect everything and there's and it will enable many things. I mean, you can't really do VR to the level that we're talking about without having AI. You can't really do many other things in the digital around unless you have AI. Mm-hmm. So in addition to AI, well, I, I think virtual reality will also have a very large effect in the sense of it'll become like more powerful than social media is today. It would become the thing after smartphones. And I think that will have a huge uh, effect on education, training, industry, office work, Mm -hmm. social media. It will all be affected by VR in a very profound way. I remember during an AMA Live you did two years ago when someone asked you what kind of technology excited you the most around Mm -hmm. that time. He says there are AI, VR, and quantified self-sensors. So if I ask you the same question today... Yeah, well, quantified self may be less, but I would certainly say AI and VR is is the first two. Now, that's visible to now. In the 30-year horizon, it's possible that we could invent or complete the invention of uh, fusion. Solar fusion, basically, it's, it's an artificial sun. It's it's an energy source. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, there's fission, nuclear fission, and this is nuclear fusion. 
which is what happens in the sun. You take fuse uh, atoms together and it makes cheap, clean, unlimited energy. So if that came in 30 years, that'd be a huge thing because you'd really cheap energy, which could clean the skies of Beijing and other places. And I think in the 30-year horizon, we will have some biological inventions like, like CRISPR, which has been invented already, but that will be perfected within 30 years. So I think there'll be a lot more um, biological inventions. And so true genetic engineering of human babies, maybe re uh, eliminating certain diseases. So if I broaden it from the digital world, which is what my book is talking about, to the larger world of science and energy and biology, biotech, I think there are some other really fundamental technologies that, that it would happen within 30 years there. Mm. So if we take a wild guess yeah. today, just imagine today now is 2050. Right. So am I going to look like a cyborg, like no. half human, half robot? You're no. not. I'm sorry just to tell you. <laughs> you're going to look like yourself. Um, maybe you'll have some gray hairs in 30 years. <laughs> but otherwise, otherwise, I think it's not going to happen that fast. Biological stuff happens much slower than digital. But you will probably be, the glasses that you're wearing will probably be magic glasses that will allow you to have some VR, or what we call MR, mixed reality, things where you'll be able to see. Maybe I will be not sitting here, but maybe I will be a virtual avatar that you're talking mm -hmm. to, that you will feel um, very, you know, like I'm really here. Maybe the clothes that you're wearing may have sensors in them that will help your posture or be monitoring your health 24 hours a day to so that you can take one pill that is giving you everything you need to uh, make you healthy. So there will be certain kinds of things like that. However, I think the room that we'll be sitting in will look very much similar. The city outside will look not that different. So no flying cars, no flying. There may be a few flying cars. There will certainly be auto-driven cars, and so a lot of the parking areas might change their use. Maybe the streets, what's on the streets look a little different, but I think the streets are still going to be there. I think most of the changes that we'll see in 30 years are not going to be in the physical world. That revolution has already happened. It's called the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. Most of the changes are going to be in your head. Who you think you are, how you conceive of yourself, your social interactions. You will be much more connected to that internet than you are right now, which seems almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm. But that power of, you, rather than looking at uh, something on your flat screen, you'll put on glasses and mm -hmm. be able to see things, have the screens around you. Um, I, I think that how you spend your day, what you spend your time on, that's what will change. But I think the fact, the nature of the chair and the nature of the table and the room will be very, very similar. Yeah, kind of like what happening in Iron Man. Yeah. So in your book, you also mentioned about the future trend of sharing. Mm. So are we going to like share everything like what happened in some highly functioned utopian society? Well, first of all, I'm not a utopian. I don't think that there's going to be a utopian society. I'm a protopian, meaning that I believe in progress, 
that tomorrow will be a little tiny bit better than today. Next year will be a little tiny bit better than last year. It will never be utopia because each time we make something new, mm -hmm. we invent new problems, almost as many new problems as solutions. And so we, we're making more and more problems in the world, but each of those problems is an opportunity. And so I think progress is actually created by new problems. And so this sense of like having more new solutions, more new problems, that's not utopia. Uh, that's protopia. But I think we are moving towards a net good. So it'll be a little bit better than today, mm. but not a utopia. Okay, so since now we're in China, and in your book you mentioned about some really exciting technology development in China, like WeChat, mm -hmm. Alibaba, Alipay. It's just something you can predict will happen in China maybe in the next 20 years. I certainly think that within the 30 years, China will become a major source of innovation and products that everybody in the world wants to buy. That's its short-term goal, 30 years is short-term. I mean, I don't know what those products will be. Maybe it's the auto-driven car, or maybe it's some kind of robot, maybe it's a flying drone or something, maybe it's something biological, but, uh, but I'm certain that China will achieve the first stage of its goal, which is to make a global product that everybody in the world wants to buy. And that requires a degree of cultural innovation that it doesn't quite have, but it's becoming very close to, of, of really having an innovative culture, which is what it's working towards. And I think it's, it's achievable within that time period. If it isn't, you know, it's going to be really bad news. But I, I think that it can. It requires a kind of a cultural transformation. Uh, there are two elements of the culture that it is missing right now in order to become a truly innovative culture. And that is it has to embrace failing fast, failing forward, failure, mm -hmm. which it doesn't quite right now. There's still a large penalty mm -hmm. in China for failing at something. Failure is the inherent, the necessary inefficiency in innovation, in science, in art. Yeah. You just have to make a lot of failures. You have to fail fast and keep failing forward in order to get anything done, in order to learn something new. And so there has to be kind of a wider embrace of, of failure. And the second, the second kind of missing cultural ingredient is being able to question authority being able to question your teachers, being able to not accept the assumptions, to challenge the assumptions. Mm -hmm. And that's also not embedded deeply enough right now mm -hmm. into the culture as a large. I think there are individuals who do that and they sometimes leave, but there has to be a little bit more widespread ability to question what everybody knows, to question authority. And that's another fundamental element. And so over time, that may, that may take a generation or two yeah. to get to. But when that happens, then that can happen in 30 years. I, I think then China will begin to ha be able to produce truly innovative things and culture that I'll, people all over the world want. I think China's working very hard to do that, and it's coming very close. But I think we'll achieve that in 30 years. Something we need to wait and see. I have like a final question. Yeah. What's next for you? 
Ah, yeah. What's next for me? I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is I'm I'm very interested in in this idea of morality and AI and robots and how we program that into them and how we become better at it ourselves. Just the general process and challenge of trying to bring morality and ethics and responsibility into robotics. And there's, it's not just me, there's a big group of people around the world called Responsible Robotics that are trying to work on this. So I'm not necessarily have any ideas, but I'm interested in the, in the subject and trying to, to understand it and keep track of it because I think it's very, very important yeah. and it will make us better humans. Um, the second thing that I'm interested in is I'm also interested in this other kind of singularity, the soft singularity of a global planetary being, a superorganism at the scale of the planet. And I'm interested in world government as an as a extension of that. None of my friends on the left, none of my liberal friends think that's a good idea. None of my conservative friends think it's a good idea. Nobody thinks that's a good idea except for me. And that, which is why I'm kind of really interested in it. I think world government's inevitable because of Star Trek, because of, I think if you go to any planet in the galaxies that's advanced civilization, they will have a planetary government. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested in the idea, but I realize that it's like we collectively have no idea how you would make a democratic representative government for 7 billion people. Yeah. How does that work? How, I mean... Do elections even work? Do, do, what's the system for representation? How do you, who decides, who decides? There are so many interesting issues about how you would make a planetary government that worked. Worked meaning that it's not just another layer of bureaucracy, but worked in terms of helping people in their lives. Yeah. And that's an unknown, mm-hmm. but I find it a very interesting unknown. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people working on it. I haven't really... But I am interested in that idea, even though most of my friends think an idea is a bad idea. Because that idea sounds a little bit hippie. Well, it's not just hippie. For some people, it seems a little bit, uh, what's the word I want, um, crazy. It's, it's kind of like a crackpot, that kind of a thing. Hmm. You know, in Star Trek, they just jump right. through horses, so we want to know what will happen. Right, exactly. <laughs> Okay, thank you so much for your time, Kevin. You're very welcome. Thanks for the great questions. Kevin Kelly, one of the most radical voices of our generation, talks with Shi Yu to lay out a roadmap for the next 30 years. If you want to hear their complete conversation, you can download the podcast from iTunes by searching the keywords Ink and Quill. To learn more about us, you are welcomed to follow our Facebook account, China Plus. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. See you next week.